0: Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind the scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field.
1: Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin. I just want to introduce this mini-series that Patrick Georgiouf put together. It's a series on ECMO. Uh, It's going to be a three-part series released this week. Uh, It is covering the basics of what you need to know of indications and and troubleshooting uh, ECMO. So uh, I think this is something that many of us uh, kind of learn on the fly, and I think a a detailed review uh, will benefit us all. Um, So thank you, Patrick, for another fantastic series that you uh, helped us out with. Uh, For all of those that had their boards canceled this past week, um, you know, that's a tough thing to go through. I'm sorry for you guys. I'm hoping the American Board of Surgery will make it up to you guys. Uh, If there's anything Behind the Knife can do um, to help with this, uh, please let us know um, and if we can help get the message out. Uh, we also have a uh, very serious podcast next week, but important. Um, it's a panel on systemic racism and, and how it has impacted surgery and how we can do better as surgeons uh, to help minimize it. So, I uh, look forward to that. And I also want to let you guys know about our uh, BTK Journalcast, it's in combination with the uh, RAS ACS committee. And uh, it is a five-minute breakdown of Journal Club articles that impact general surgery. So you can check it out on our YouTube page. Um, And this most recent one was on the STITCH trial. There's been ones on aortic aneurysms um, and and multiple other topics. So if you want a quick five-minute breakdown of landmark studies in surgery, uh, please go check out our YouTube page. Uh, Just search Behind the Knife on YouTube.
2: Um, Okay, well, uh, Patrick, take it away. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. My name is Patrick Georgioff, Trauma Surgery Fellow at the Red Duke Trauma Institute in Houston, Texas. And today I'm joined by Dr. Nicholas Tiemann, who's a cardiac surgeon and director of adult ECMO at the University of Virginia. And today we're going to talk about ECMO, Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation, veno-venous ECMO to be support. So Nick and I both happen to love ECMO and we had the privilege of training together at the University of Michigan, home to the great Dr. Robert Bartlett. We both got hooked on ECMO. And with COVID raging, we thought there's no better time than now to talk about VV ECMO. So in this episode, which is one uh, of a three-part series, we're going to cover VV ECMO in detail from soup to nuts with a bunch of tips and tricks and clinical scenarios mixed in. So this Behind the Knife episode is for anyone and everyone who isn't interested in ECMO, but it's really going to be most useful for people who have had some kind of exposure to VV ECMO in the past and have had some experience with advanced ventilator management. So before we get started, Nick, can you tell us what exactly is VV ECMO?
0: Right. So ECMO is extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And during ECMO, deoxygenated blood is drained from a vein with the assistance of a pump It's passed through an artificial lung to allow for the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And then it's returned to either another vein, in the case of veno-venous ECMO, or an artery, in the case of veno-arterial ECMO.
2: Right. And like I mentioned before, we're going to focus on VV, veno-venous ECMO today. Uh, And in this episode, we're going to cover the indications, the outcomes, and how we go about cannulation. Okay, then in part two, we're going to talk about oxygenation, CO2 clearance, And pump speed and pressure. And then finally, in part three, we're going to wrap it up and discuss all the other stuff that comes along with VV ECMO, like how you manage the ventilator. Think about anticoagulation, hemolysis, of course, decannulating people, and complications. And so uh, how about a case to get us started, Nick?
0: All right, Patrick. So let's say you've got a COVID patient. She was admitted six days ago with shortness of breath and hypoxia. Last night, she decompensated and you had to intubate her. Now, today, she continues to be hypoxic. She's on optimized ventilator settings, but they're quite high. You've proned her, you've paralyzed her, you've done everything else you know how to do from critical care management of ARDS. So how do you determine if this patient is a good ECMO candidate?
2: Right. So this, you know, we're starting right off with a strong one. This is probably the most important part of our entire three-part series in that trying to determine who is a good candidate for ECMO is extremely challenging. And it's probably the hardest part about what we do. Who do we put on and when do we put them on? So this is a very challenging question. So so the indications for ECMO are very much patient-specific, they're doctor-specific, and they're institution-specific. Uh, but we do have the Extracorporeal Life Support Organization Guidelines, or ELSO. And their specific recommendations of uh, a candidacy for VV ECMO include five different categories of folks. So number one, hypoxemia with a high mortality rate, okay? They say 50% or higher, consider ECMO, 80% or higher. That's an indication for VV ECMO. Number two is refractory hypercarbia. Three, severe air leak syndromes. Four, as a bridge to uh, to lung transplant. And then finally, in respiratory collapse in the setting of something like a PE.
0: So you mentioned hypoxemia with a high mortality rate, but how do you determine that mortality rate?
2: Right. So there are a number of different scoring systems that can help. And, and this includes things like the P to F ratio, the oxygen index, the Murray score, and the rest score. Okay. So let's start with the P to F ratio. Okay. So, so the PDF ratio is just what it sounds like. It's the ratio of PaO2 to FiO2. For example, if a, PA, a patient's PaO2 is 60 millimeters of mercury on a fractionation of inspired oxygen of 90%, this will give you a PDF ratio of 67. So if the PDF ratio is less than 150, studies tell us mortality is around 50%. If the PDF ratio is less than 100, we're reaching around 80% mortality.
0: Okay, great. So what about the oxygen index?
2: Right. So the oxygen index is an easy little equation. So the oxygen index equals the FiO2 times the mean airway pressure divided by the PaO2. So again, FiO2 times mean airway pressure divided by the PaO2. So for example, a FiO2 of 90% with a mean airway pressure of 20 and a PaO2 of 60 yields an oxygen index of 30. So anything less than 25, so the lower scores are good, anything less than 25 tends to have a good outcome. But higher scores, specifically greater than 40, Studies have shown the patient should be considered for ECMO at that point based on their relatively poor outcomes or without it.
0: So you also mentioned the Murray score. Now, the Murray score was developed in 1988, and it was used in the CSER trial, which we're going to cover in much more detail in just a minute. And it determines the severity of ARDS and the suitability of a patient for ECMO. The different components of the Murray score include the degree of chest x-ray consolidation, the P to F ratio the amount of PEEP, or positive end expiratory pressure that the patient's on, and the lung compliance. To calculate the lung compliance, you can just take the tidal volume divided by the peak inspiratory pressure minus the PEEP, and a normal value for that is around 50 to 100 milliliters per centimeter of water. The Murray score uh, is a indic- indic- indicative of uh, considering ECMO when the
2: score is 2 or greater. Perfect. Um, And last, the RESP score, R-E-S-P, the RESP score. So this score predicts the survival of patients going on ECMO. And and there are a handful of other scoring systems like the RESP score, but the RESP score is the most widely referenced. And it also used really by far and away the largest number of patients to create uh, the score itself. So these patients came, they're greater than 2,000 of them actually from the ELSO registry. And there are 12 components of the score. i rattle them off. Age, immunocompromised status, duration on the vent, acute respiratory diagnosis group, the presence of central nervous system dysfunction, the presence of a non-pulmonary infection, prior use of neuromuscular blockade, prior use of nitric oxide, prior use of an HCO3 or bicarbonate infusion, cardiac arrest before going on ECMO, PACO2 greater than 75 millimeters of mercury. And a peak inspiratory pressure of greater than 42 centimeters of water. So, again, the RESP score predicts survival of patients going on ECMO.
0: That's right. And there's a lot of details here. You just have to remember the main scoring systems, which are the P to F ratio, the oxygen index, the Murray score, and the RESP score. You don't have to memorize all the de- details of these because there's online calculators to be able to calculate all of these different
2: scoring systems. Right. And if you throw those four scores together, it really gives you a good sense of kind of where you're at and, and allows you to speak in a common language to other providers when it comes to considering certain patients for ECMO. Um, so, uh, Nick, let's go back to our COVID patients. Um, uh, she again had six days of symptoms intubated last night.
0: All right. So let's say she's got a P to F ratio of 80, an oxygen index of 45, and a Murray score of three. All of these numbers are bad. And without taking anything else into account about the patient, make her a
2: candidate for VV ECMO. Right, but but it's not that easy though. So So determining who is a good candidate for ECMO is particularly vexing because even though we have these numbers and these scores, we really don't have a clear picture of who would benefit from VV ECMO.
0: You're absolutely right, we don't. And our job is to try and identify the patients who will do well with ECMO,
2: but would have done poorly without
0: it. And that's very challenging to do.
2: All right. I think that's worth repeating. So to identify good ECMO candidates, we need to find out who will do well with ECMO, but not without it. And in reality, it's really all kind of shades of gray to some degree. So uh, you know, we have a patient who comes in, let's say, uh, high vent settings, not crashing before your eyes, but not doing great. And we have to think to ourselves, what are they going to look like in three days? Are they going to be better without ECMO? Are they going to be worse? Will they benefit from ECMO now? Should we have them yesterday? Should we cannulate them tomorrow? Or maybe we have a patient who is super super sick. Their ventilator settings are brutally high. Their chest X rays entirely whited out. They've developed a, developed multi system organ failure. Should they be put on ECMO? Can we save them? Or are we just uh, a wasting our time here? Are they going to do poorly whether we cannulate them or not? And It's extremely challenging.
0: That's right. It's actually the most challenging part. You know the the surgical techniques that we use to cannulate a patient for ECMO are not particularly difficult. You know it's not technically difficult. It's really the decision making. And the patient selection that can
2: often be the most challenging part of this whole thing. Sure, sure. Now, Nick, are there any contraindications to ECMO that we should talk about?
0: So, you know, a lot of different folks are going to have different opinions on this. In my mind, there are there are many relative contraindications. Things like being on a high uh, high ventilator settings for more than a week, being immunosuppressed, having a central nervous system bleed, malignancy, advanced age, or other significant comorbidities. Sometimes we talk about patients who are on a high amount of vasopressors or in cardiogenic shock. And in that case, sometimes you'd want to consider VA ECMO, you know, veno-arterial ECMO. But if you've got a patient who's hypoxic and they're on a low amount of vasopressors, uh, a lot of time that's going to get better with VV ECMO. You know, one thing I always teach my residents is that oxygen is the best vasopressor. So you put them on VV ECMO, you correct their hypoxia, and their vasopressor requirement just kind of disappears. In my mind, the only absolute contraindication to ECMO is an irreversible, irreversible disease process without having a viable exit strategy.
2: Yeah, I think that's correct. You mentioned it without a viable exit strategy. Absolutely important. So, Nick, let's say our patient has no uh, actual contraindications that we can really identify, and we opt to put her on ECMO. What kind of outcomes can we expect? So this is where we go back to
0: the ELSO uh, registry that you mentioned earlier. And so ELSO collects uh, outcomes on ECMO patients from around the world. So as of January of 2020, there have been uh, there were 24,395 adult uh, VV ECMO runs in the registry and 60 percent, six zero, 60 percent of patients survived to discharge from the hospital or transfer to another hospital.
2: Right. Interesting. And there are probably well, there are there, there are two randomized trials that we should touch on to make sure that, you know, when we talk about indications, these are two trials you should know about.
0: Right. So the first is the Caesar trial. So back in 2009, this was published in The Lancet. It was entitled The Efficacy and Economic Assessment of Conventional Ventilatory Support versus Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Severe Adult Respiratory Failure. And this a multi-center randomized control trial. So this uh, this trial took place in the United Kingdom from 2001 to 2006. They took 180 patients with severe respiratory failure and randomized them to standard care with lung protective ventilation at the center that they were at versus transferring them to a single tertiary ECMO center. The patients were not necessarily randomized to ECMO. They were just randomized to transfer to the tertiary care center. And what they found was that the patients that went to this tertiary care center had significantly better outcomes. The freedom from death or disability was 63%, uh, in the ECMO, uh, center group versus 47% in the conventional ventilation group. Now, that being said, only 75% of the patients in the ECMO group actually got ECMO. And the patients that were treated at the, uh, in the, um, in the, uh, control arm in the, uh, in their initial hospital, only seventy percent of those folks got uh, lung protective ventilation, compared with ninety-three percent of the patients in the transfer group. We don't have a good follow-up information, and and in reality, what they showed was that transfer to a special uh, tertiary care center resulted in better outcomes. Doesn't necessarily uh, correlate with uh, being on ECMO.
2: Yeah, yeah, interesting. So, really about transfer to a specialty center. Hard to say a lot about ECMO itself, but especially center, these folks did better. So there's a newer trial, EOLIA, E-O-L-I-A. Tell me about that one, Nick.
0: Yeah, so the EOLIA trial was just recently published in the New England Journal back in 2018. That was entitled Extracorporeal Membrane Oxygenation for Severe Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome. This took place in France, uh, mostly in France, in 64 ICUs. They randomized 249 patients with severe ARDS that were intubated for less than seven days. And they actually randomized them to ECMO or no ECMO. So it was either the standard of care, lung protective ventilation versus ECMO. The major difference between the EOLIA trial and the CSER trial is that in the EOLIA trial, the control group really got the standard of care. They got aggressive ARDS management. They were, they were prone. They were paralyzed and, and, uh, and really a very appropriate care. The results of this trial showed that there was no statistically significant difference in mortality at 60 days. Uh, And the trial was actually stopped early because there was no difference. That being said, 46% of the uh, patients um, uh, in the control arm died versus 35% in the ECMO group. There was also a significant uh, rate of crossover with 28% of the uh, patients in the non-ECMO group
2: eventually receiving ECMO. Yeah. So the OLIA trial is inconclusive in its findings, but does suggest that patients with severe ARDS may may benefit from ECMO. But there there is still a lot of controversy surrounding the results of this study, and a follow-up Bayesian analysis is even more suggestive of a mortality benefit in the ECMO cohort.
0: You know, there was also a few uh, prospective cohort studies out there that suggest that ECMO may be beneficial. We're not going to get into that today, but that's really it for outcomes data with uh, ECMO
2: and ARDS. Right. So limited to say the least, right? We covered in that short order of time, the two, the two randomized control trials. So again, the indi- indications, it's, it's hard. It's, uh, it's hard to identify who's, who's the appropriate candidate. That's right. Uh, so, um, let's get technical now. Okay. Let's, let's say that we've made, you know, using, using all the information we have and, and really ca- thinking carefully about our patient, we decided to cannulate our COVID patient. And I guess we should say too, uh, <laughs> we're using a COVID patient as an example because that's, that's what's happening right now. Uh, the use of ECMO in COVID patients in and of itself is somewhat controversial in terms of resources and how busy hospitals are and overwhelmed. Uh, so let's just assume we're, we're isolated in a, in a situation which ECMO use is appropriate when it comes to u- uh, our, our utilization of resources. So we decide to cannulate our patient. What kind of VV, veno-venous configurations are there, Nick? So
0: we have a couple of different options, right? So, So the first is femoral, femoral, Second is femoral and internal jugular veins. And the third is using a bicable dual lumen internal uh, jugular cannula. There are pros and cons to each. And the configuration that each different institution uses uh, is really quite varied. In some hands, dual femoral, so femoral femoral cannulas are the fastest and easiest to insert, but they have a higher risk of recirculation. The flows are somewhat limited to somewhere between two and six liters per minute. And it can be harder to mobilize the patient with cannulas in both groins.
2: Right. And so for the femoral IJ approach, uh, deoxygenated blood is drained from the femoral vein and oxygenated blood is returned back into the IJ. And so this actually yields the highest flows up to seven liters per minute. Uh, It may, depending if it's appropriately positioned, decrease recirculation, which we're going to talk about in more detail in a little bit compared to the femoral femoral approach. And it allows for easy addition of another uh, femoral drainage cannula should that be needed. And this is a key uh, aspect of flow is getting good drainage. And so we'll talk more about that, too.
0: Yeah. And so and finally, the other uh, option is the bicable dual lumen internal jugular catheter. Um, these are nice because it's just a single cannula. So uh, it's just one insertion site. You have minimal recirculation because the two lumens are separated by by space within the heart. Um, But you're somewhat limited because you're going to flow a little bit lower, maxes out around five liters per minute, and usually requires some degree of additional imaging for placement, such as fluoroscopy or echocardiography. One advantage of it is that it's easier to sit up and mobilize the patient because there's nothing in the groin, and it's particularly useful uh, for patients that are bridged to lung transplant.
2: Right, and and like we said, there's pros and cons to these. There's no right answer, and. Which configuration is used? It really varies based upon institution. So, you and I did our general surgery and uh, critical care training at the University of Michigan, where the initial least preferred approach uh, tended to be femoral and IJ. Um, here at the University of Texas uh, in Houston, where I'm at right now, we start with a fem-fem approach. What about you, Nick, at the University of Virginia? What's the kind of the go-to approach? Yeah, so
0: we tend to start with the uh, dual lumen IJ catheter. Um, and, you know, so clearly there's a lot of different ways to, to skin the cat here. I think the important thing is having a way that you do it and being consistent and doing it you know, the same way every time and, and allowing your your system to, uh, to have good uh, experience with that.
2: Sure. All right. Let's talk about cannula size. So flow this is a very, very important flow is limited by the length and the diameter of the venous drainage cannula. So obviously, the greater the diameter and the shorter the length, the better the drainage.
0: That's right. And so for that very reason, we want to place the shortest and widest cannulas that we can.
2: Right. And and drainage cannulas are often multi-stage, right? You'll hear the term multi-stage. Multi-stage just means that they actually have multiple drainage holes uh, uh, throughout um, at the end of the cannula.
0: Right. As opposed to return cannulas, which are usually single-stage, meaning there's just holes at the end as opposed to multiple levels of holes along the cannula. All
2: right. Let's touch base on how to decide what size cannula to put in. So um, while experienced cannulators may not necessarily do this, one thing you can do is measure uh, the vessel diameter using an ultrasound. And this can help you determine the largest cannula you can safely place. So once you've measured the diameter uh, in millimeters, you can multiply that by pi, and the result will give you the largest French size that you can place in the vessel. Now, you don't want that cannula to obstruct the entire vessel. You want some blood flow around it, so... A good rule of thumb is to multiply that by uh, two-thirds, and that will give you, again, the largest cannula you can place in that vessel while allowing for blood flow around it.
0: And uh, you, so your drainage cannulas are typically somewhere around 19 to 25 French. Return cannulas are usually 17 to 21 French. The dual-lumen cannulas, they come in a wide variety of sizes, but uh, most adults will get somewhere between a 27 or a 32 French cannula, depending on which brand you're using. Now, there are flow charts for these different size cannulas that can be useful to review and help you make that decision.
2: Sure. And in regards to technique, placing an ECMO cannula is very similar, if not really just the same thing, just kind of steroid version of placing a very large central line or, or an arterial sheath, for that matter, in that you use an ultrasound-guided uh, Seldinger-type technique um, to place these lines. That's the most common approach. Uh, you can certainly use cut downs if needed, but by and large, uh, ultrasound guided salvage technique is, is the go-to. Uh, and for this, uh, fundamentals definitely matter, right? Uh, uh, these cannulas are, are very big. So, uh, what can, uh, kind of tips and tricks do we have for that, Nick? Yes, that's right, Patrick.
0: So, you know, just like you're placing essential line, you're going to want to confirm that you're in the right vessel using either ultrasound or manometry or both. You want to make sure the wire is freely mobile as you advance it and as you uh, dilate and advance the cannula. And as you advance the dilator and the cannula, you want to use gentle backwards tension on the wire to kind of pin the wire back so that you get a straight shot down with the dilator
2: or the cannula. Right. And there are a couple of notable differences, though, between standard central line placement and ECMO cannulation. So in the absence of contraindications, patients should be anticoagulated in general, uh, that's fifty to one hundred units of heparin uh, per kilogram, and you do uh, administer that uh, right before you admin, uh, insert those cannulas. Uh, we also want to use a super stiff wire uh, to advance these large cannulas, specifically uh, a 0.038 inch Amplatz wire, which usually is actually uh, not included in the manufacturer's kit, and so uh, most times I've seen it, it's a separate wire that's included in the ECMO cart that you can pull and use for insertion of cannulas. Again, different than the wire. It's, which is not quite as stiff, which comes in most of these uh, cannula kits.
0: Absolutely right, Patrick. The point about the super stiff wire is very important, and it's not just—it's not just a funny name we're giving it. That's actually the name of the wire: is the super stiff wire. Uh, these are huge cannulas. If you kink the wire when you're dilating or when you're advancing the cannula, that can be a huge problem. When you're inserting through the IJ, you need to ensure that the wire is gone, has gone past the right atrium, and that it's not in a hepatic vein. And that it's not crossing the tricuspid valve into the right ventricle or else a serious bleeding complication can result. Mm -mm, Bad news. Bad news. You can confirm the location of the wire and ultimately the uh, location of your cannula using x-ray. And if you're going to do that, have the uh, x-ray plate put in uh, behind the patient before the procedure starts. Have the x-ray tech in the room and then they can shoot some serial films as you progress through the, the process. Or you can use ultrasound, either a surface echo or a TE. Or you can use
2: fluoroscopy. And Nick, what do you like to use?
0: So we usually do this with, uh, with just TEE, uh, that we get a, a bi-cable view and that allows you to see the, uh, the wire go straight down from the IJ through the right atrium, go straight down the, uh, IVC. And we feel pretty confident with that. Sometimes if we don't have an experienced, uh, echocardiographer or someone that can do a TEE nearby, then we, uh, will use uh, either fluoroscopy or plane films, depending on
2: where we're located at the time and what kind of technology we have available at that moment in time. Sure, sure. So uh femoral drainage cannulas, those should end at the hepatic vein. Uh and the reason for that is there tends to be good flow there in this location. And it is thought to that the liver architecture may actually stent open the IVC in this area. And uh this can avoid uh, potentially avoid the cannula from sucking down in the IVC or sucking against the wall. And femoral or IJ or IJ uh return cannulas should end at the cavoatrial junction. Essentially emptying oxygenated blood directly to the right heart. Um, in addition to using x-ray and our ultrasound and or fluoroscopy, you can simply measure the cannula against the patient prior to insertion as well to give yourself a, a sense of, of how far you're going and then you need to confirm uh, with one of those modalities.
0: So one other thing to note, Patrick, is that you know cannula insertion really often is a two person job. You, know, you can, in, in a pinch, you can do it by yourself, but if you have an experienced assistant uh, that can help you out. It's really uh, very helpful, and the safest way to do this. Having someone yeah. that can help hold pressure so you're not bleeding, that can control the wire so the wire doesn't get contaminated or or lost, is really uh, I think the best way to do this.
2: Yeah, critical, really. And and when you cannulate a patient, we also want to ensure that there's no air entrained into the ECMO circuit. And this is probably a uh, no brainer for for folks like Nick and cardiothoracic surgeons who put people on pump all the time. But for the non cardiothoracic surgeons, we do this by uh, uh, performing what we call a wet connection so you could do this multiple ways one way you could ask the perfusionist to slowly run the ecmo circuit forward and the priming solution will be pushed forward and you can have a wet connection that way uh, and avoid bubbles or you can have simply an assistant squirting a saline into both ends of the connection tubing and while you connect it to ensure again a bubble air free connection
0: right and so when you're putting on a patient on ecmo there's going to be some degree of hemodilution that occurs just from the priming solution that's already in the circuit when you, when you start up the circuit. Most of these circuits are, are 3 H, uh, 3 eighths inch diameter tubing. And so that results in a roughly uh, one half to one liter bolus of priming solution, depending on how long the tubing is in the rest of the setup. Uh, importantly to note, this will not result in volume overload uh, due to additional circuit volume or expanded vascular volume. Um, but, uh, but most of the circuits are heparin bonded. Uh, and can be primed with crystalloids, as opposed to in the past where we had to use blood or albumin to uh, prime the circuits. The only uh, kind of exception to that is in children, where oftentimes we'll still use blood as our priming solution.
2: Sure. And okay, how about cannulas? How far should the cannulas uh, be apart? We mentioned recirculation briefly before.
0: Yeah. So ideally, we want to have at least eight centimeters of separation between the uh, ends of the two cannulas to avoid recirculation. Now, there's always going to be some degree of recirculation. And and so what, what is that? So that's when the oxygenated blood that is returned from the ECMO circuit to the patient is basically drained right back to the circuit through the drainage cannula rather than going through the heart. So essentially, you've got this loop where the blood is just going around in a loop rather than perfusing the body. Uh, you can identify recirculation, uh, when the uh, pre-oxygenator Oxygen saturation is higher than expected and higher uh, compared to the uh, peripheral uh, PaO2 and the peripheral oxygen saturation. So let's say we cannulate our COVID patient. She remains hypoxic and she's got a PaO2 of 55 and a oxygen saturation of 85%. We check a pre-oxygenator oxygen saturation and it's 70%. So most of the, uh, the oxygenated blood that we're giving her is just circulating around back to the ECMO pump. So, Patrick, what do we do when we identify that there's recirculation happening?
2: Right. Before I answer that question, I want to point out you said a sat of eighty five percent and a pre-oxygen saturation of seventy percent. So that's fifteen percent difference for a patient who's not sitting well. That that's too that's too close. It should be much different. We should have better systemic sats and we should have a lower return oxygen saturation for someone who's that hypoxic. So there are four main ways to address recirculation. One, we can increase the distance between the cannulas to eight centimeters or more, simply. Pull the cannulas farther apart. That's number one. Number two, we could add a drainage cannula to implu- improve flow and decrease negative pressure, thereby decreasing the likelihood that oxygenating uh, of blood returning from the return cannula is sucked up through that high negative pressure draw back into the can- uh, into the drainage cannula. Uh, number three, uh, we want to ensure that the return cannula is at the cave atrial junction. Again, trying to imagine a shooting oxygenated blood right into the right heart. And last. Uh we could use a bi-cable, uh dual lumen uh, uh cannula, which is, as Nick mentioned earlier, just based on their design have lower rates of recirculation.
0: Exactly. And finally, the most important thing, don't forget to secure the cannulas. We usually put a purse string right around the insertion site, and then multiple sutures holding the cannula in place or or grip locks either down the leg or up the neck. For internal jugular cannulas, I like also using some Coban or a Foley leg strap uh, you can wrap around the patient's head uh, in addition to the sutures to keep the cannula secure to the patient's head. Vitally important, every single day you assess the position of the cannula on physical exam and x-rays that can sometimes get moved around. Last thing you want is one of these cannulas migrating up and out of the patient because that is a total disaster.
2: Yeah, easy to forget, right? It's not it's not a place to forget it. You really got to keep an eye on those things and, and x-ray um, and a physical exam is going to help you do that. So that wraps it up for the first of our three episodes. On the next episode, we will cover oxygenation, ventilation, and pumps, flows, and pressures related to the circuit itself. So how about a quick review, Nick?
0: Great. A lot of great information today. So the first thing, remember, there are a number of different scoring systems that can help identify ECMO candidates. These include the P to F ratio, the oxygen index, the Murray score, and the RESP score. Second, to identify a good ECMO candidate, we need to identify the patients who will do well with ECMO, but not without it. And this is very challenging to do. And third thing, the only randomized controlled trial truly comparing ECMO to standard of care is the EOLIA trial. The Caesar trial, which came before EOLIA, supports specialized management in tertiary care centers, but doesn't necessarily
2: support ECMO. Great. Number four, flow and therefore oxygenation is limited by the length and diameter of venous drainage cannulas. For that reason, we want to place the shortest and widest cannulas possible. Number five, wire and cannula location are extremely important and critical for safe cannulation and efficient ECMO. You can confirm the location of the wire and your cannula using x-ray, ultrasound, or fluoroscopy. And number six, recirculation is identified when pre-oxygenator oxygen saturation is higher than expected compared to the peripheral PaO2 or SATs. To fix this, Uh, We can increase uh, the distance between the cannulas, add a drainage cannula to improve flow and decrease negative pressure, ensure the return cannula is at the cavo-atrial junction, or use a bicavel dual-lumen cannula design.
0: Until Until next time, dominate
2: the day.